This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we'll be talking with Eva Moskowitz, a pioneering and sometimes controversial figure in American education. Eva is well known as the founder of Success Academy Charter Schools in New York City. We will hear about her new book, The Education of Eva Moskowitz, a memoir. In the book, she talks about how those 40 or so schools were launched and how they're doing now. But the book also tells the story of Eva's own career. It offers insights that may be valuable to people who are considering a career in education. More than that, the book is a story of perseverance, providing inspiration to anyone who wants to change the way things are today. Eva, your new book, The Education of Eva Moskowitz, a memoir, has two distinct but very interesting interwoven storylines. One, of course, is the as a really detailed account of how you have built Success Academy Charter Schools, a fast-growing network of maybe 40-odd public charter schools in New York City. But, but here at uh, Jazzed About Work, we're fascinated with people who are passionate about their careers and, and persevere through all kinds of challenges. And I, I think that's why I was so riveted by the second storyline, and, and that's really how how you've built your career, going back to your grandparents who uh, came to the United States escaping from the Nazis to to your own kind of tumultuous childhood and and how you worked your way into uh, being the the innovator in education that you are today. I want to hear a bit about the uh, Success Academy, and I want to hear more about your career. But but let me start with a question of, about this wonderful book, and and that is, you're only 52. So how is it you decided that you'd write a book that's a memoir at what seems to me to be a young age for this? And, and how did you bring yourself to write such an incredibly honest, candid book, kind of putting everything out there? So why a memoir, and, and was it hard to be so frank? Well, uh, those are really good questions. Uh, I uh, believe in just uh, you know, radical candor. I, I think it's uh, important to, as best one can, uh, tell it like it is. And so I tried to do that in, in the book. And, uh, you know, in education, uh, it's sort of like uh, dog years. Uh, mm-hmm. Twelve years of doing this really feel uh, like much more because the battles and setbacks uh, were so intense. Uh, right now, we have 46 schools. Uh, we're educating 15,500 kids, kindergarten through uh, 12th grade. Uh, and uh, while we're the seventh largest school district in the state of New York, we're number one in terms of student achievement. And at almost every point along the way, it almost all unraveled. And so it seemed an important story 
to tell about having a dream. Uh, for me, the dream is really about educational access and justice for our poorest, most vulnerable kids uh, to see if you could build an alternative uh, to failing district schools and really reimagine K-12 public education. And I thought it was important for people to know that it's not a straight line. Yes, it's it's a tumultuous path, it looked like. Uh, I, I want to get into some of the uh, tumultuous challenges you faced and how you kept yourself going uh, after some uh, daunting challenges. But but first, I, I think in some cities, charter schools are big news, but some of our listeners are in locations where they may not be available. They're not available in all states, and they seem to vary a, a good deal from state to state. Would you just give us a little background information and explain just what a charter school is. And, and one of the things that, that you've said is that a charter school is just another kind of public school. Can you explain that for people who may not be familiar with the charter school movement? Sure. And charter schools now exist in 48 states. Kentucky was the most recent state to get a charter school law. And you're exactly right. They're a different kind of public school, but they're a public school nonetheless. They admit kids by random lottery, so you get no basis for selection. Uh, the schools are free. They are government-funded, government-regulated, although often the funding is less than the district funding, and that's because of politics, not for any other reason. But public charter schools, unlike district schools, are both free from the bureaucracy uh, but also often free from the labor contracts. And that gives one the freedom to organize the school around teaching and learning. So here's something that I had not understood. You started with one charter school in New York City, and mm -hmm. kind of one by one, challenge by challenge, you started to build out the network. But from the very beginning, you were co-locating the charter school in the same space as a traditional public school. Can you comment on how that worked? Sure. It's a policy called co-location, and the theory is that, uh, you know, the taxpayers have already paid for the building, and in many geographies and localities, uh, because of decreasing district enrollment, there are, uh, in New York, there are hundreds of half-empty buildings. And so the theory was, well, if you have a public charter school, since it's public, why wouldn't you give charter schools access to the very same buildings that district schools have? Most of the co-locations <clears throat> are district, meaning there are multiple district schools in a single building. But some of the co-locations, a smaller percentage, are district and public charter. And what that allows one to do is not be involved in private real estate, both the co cost and expertise. So most of our buildings are co-located in existing but underutilized 
public school building. So that sounds like, from the very beginning, there were management challenges that you might not have in a, another kind of startup because you were you were sharing space and I assume services and it, it sounds like the very beginning was kind of chaotic. Is that right? Well, everything having to do with school startup is, is a little chaotic. Uh-huh. In our case, we were really trying to reimagine everything from sourcing and logistics to what is the best way to provide not only traditional academic educational services, but how do you run chess tournaments and soccer games? How do you want run a world-class visual arts program? How do you compensate your teachers as generously as possible? How do you, uh, what kind of titling do you have in the organization? We were really ground zero trying to figure all that out. And our North Star was really how to run a high-performance organization that serves children at the highest level. One of the, one of the themes that I liked as I was reading about this, and of course I have no children and no expertise in, in K-12, so a lot of this was pretty enlightening to me. But I, I like the philosophy that doing is at the core of learning. And, of course, people have talked about that for a while, and that hasn't always been reflected, as far as I can see, in, in how schools run their programs. But in your schools, the, the standard um, you wrote is, is that kids get only about 80 minutes of, of direct instruction where the teacher's standing up in the front of the room um, is that right? And, and what do they do the rest of the day? Well, uh, that is right. Uh, it's 80 minutes in a nine and a half hour day. It's 10 minutes of subjects. So for example, uh, when kids go to chess, all of our kids take chess. When kids go to chess, the chess teacher might give what's called a mini lesson, but that mini lesson can only last for 10 minutes. And the rest of the time, the kids need to be playing chess so that they are learning by doing. And in that sense, we are disciples of John Dewey, who really believed that uh, kids learn best when they get their hands dirty and actually get to practice the thinking Uh and actions that they need in order to master the subject. So if we're teaching a 10-minute mini-lesson on writing, the remaining 40 or 50 minutes, the kids are working in groups and writing and revising. I see. One of the things that um, you described, I I think, is is that as as you're teaching, as you're working on projects and, and kids are doing things together, it, it, it feels like one of the things you're doing is you're trying to have people develop a sense of their own competence and that you're, it, it felt to me as somebody who's interested in careers, is that when you're doing these activities, you're helping people think about themselves as, as accomplished, competent performers 
in a way that's going to shape their career way down the road when they're looking at colleges and things like that. Is, is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, we want, we believe schooling is uh, a, a working backwards. The end goal of schooling is critical and creative thinking and problem solving. And we want even our kids as young as kindergarten to see themselves as problem solvers. And so we think that that kind of academic intellectual foundation is going to carry them through uh, for the rest of their lives. Well, let me shift gears a little bit, because as I said, I was very intrigued by your story. It it feels like your p- parents gave you a lot of freedom and kind of threw you out in the world from time to time, not literally, but almost, so that so you learn to think for yourself. Is Can you talk a bit about how your own childhood and your upbringing may have impacted your thinking about helping kids to feel competent and confident? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a household that highly valued education, but even more importantly, valued ideas and self-expression. And so discussion at the dinner table and the breakfast table, even at a very young age, I was expected to have ideas and persuade others of them and have evidence to back up my thoughts. So that's the kind of household I grew up in. I also think that, um, you know, I grew up in a household where being pragmatic and not hostile to um, pragmatism was also just really important. And so, for example, at our schools, uh, we teach the kids to type in second grade. uh, And some people get a little upset because we don't teach cursive, uh, even though there's an argument for teaching cursive handwriting. We think it's a little more practical to teach kids to type in this day and age. Um, so we're, we're kind of this odd combination, our schools, of idealism and pragmatism. And I think that very much reflects the household I grew up in. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or environmental studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. I like your phrase, radical candor. And I, I liked a theme that was in your book that you keep letting everybody know. You let the principal know, you let the teachers know, you let parents know about where you're trying to get to. 
So how do you share the information with the community, with parents, that, that you're trying to develop an awareness of, um, of competence, that you're, you're trying to um, help people be critical thinkers? That feels like it might sound like a bit much to some parents. How do you, how do you bring them into the picture? I think, I think it does. Uh, I remember my very first meeting with parents where I didn't have a building and I hadn't hired any teachers and, uh, you know, parents wanted to know, you know, what they were going to get by coming to success. And they were really, really concerned with safety. And I remember thinking, well, of course, we're going to ensure your child's safety, but you know, we're, we're actually going to teach your kids to be scientists and mathematicians and writers and artists. And, you know, how do you convince lots of uh, parents to follow you on this journey that you can actually have much more than safety and your children deserve, frankly, that, of course, safety, but much more than that. It takes a lot of communication I think now we're at a point where, uh, you know, our brand is so well known that people are expecting that uh, if I have a chess vacancy, I, I get a lot of parental complaints. Well, where's my chess uh-huh. teacher? Understandably. But that's not how it was in the beginning. And there are still aspects of the model that require explaining. We, I'm a big believer in games. And so every Wednesday, uh, we spend 90 minutes playing. Kindergartners do blockus, first graders do backgammon, second graders do monopoly, and third and fourth graders do settlers of Catan. And parents sometimes look a little bit askance. Why are we playing monopoly in school? Is that really a good use of time? And, you know, I have to defend um, games and why games are actually socially and intellectually, really important for kids. Why are they? Well, a lot of good thinking occurs outside of academic subjects. Chess would be a prime example of this, but Settlers of Catan, for example, is a very strategic game. Uh, also, um, if anyone listening is a, obviously a parent, you know that kids, when you first start playing Monopoly, Kids spend the majority of their time arguing about the rules and the pieces yes, and all sorts of things. And you actually have to give kids time to argue and work it out. That's an incredibly important life skill. And when we start games, the 90 minutes goes by and they almost haven't gotten started because they're so busy arguing. And they quickly learn that if they want to play... They better argue less. So that's kind of the argument that used to be made just about athletics, that learning how to be on teams and so forth. That this is, is putting it in a, a broader context and also giving people a chance to learn different kind of thinking in, in the process. So it's really an important part of, uh, of your system, it sounds like. And I, I really believe in athletics as well. We have 4,000 kids. In our soccer program, uh, we have a world-class soccer program, and I, I believe that 
very, very strongly. Uh, you know, academics is one part of schooling, a very important part. But for me, the non-academic part of the school day is just as important. And schools don't always treat them as equal mm-hmm. and do as success. So you've written, you wrote somewhere in the book, I don't remember where, that although schools, of course, should be joyful, children need to struggle, that, that they grow through struggling and, and overcoming um, issues. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. I think there's a way in which uh, people have tried to take the struggle out of schooling to break it down into little itty-bitty pieces so kids can master. And I think that's wrong and, frankly, damaging to kids. They need to struggle. Obviously, you don't want to teach calculus in kindergarten. It can't be such a struggle that the kids can't master it. But it's in the struggle, in the intellectual struggle or athletic struggle, where kids learn what they're capable of and achieve mastery. And I would also argue much higher levels of self-esteem when children have succeeded in mastering difficult material to them, uh, they have a sense of very authentic satisfaction that you don't get when it's really easy and cut up in little bits for you. I, I think that it's it's not just children and looking at managing situations in, in, in the job world or the nonprofit world. Uh, the, the same thing can happen if you protect people too much or you micromanage them so much that they don't have to figure things out. They, they, they don't grow and they also don't get the joy. But on the topic of struggle, uh, you have, you've had to model that. This has not been an easy path, as we talked about. It was not a straight line. It's gotten pretty personal. I, I've read some things about uh, people complaining about you as obnoxious and there have been moments along the way when it, it sounded like they wanted to shut you down. And from the candor in your book, I get the feeling you didn't just let this roll off your back. This really hurt, and, and, and you felt crushed from time to time, and, and yet you got up and kept going. What is it that makes it possible for a person to do that when it just feels like everybody's against you? How do, how do you get up and go to work the next day? it's pretty difficult and it um, causes a little bit of cognitive dissonance uh, because, you know, my mother brought me up to be gracious and so to be represented in the media one way, I often find myself reading a story and I'm thinking, who is this person? And it turns out it's me. Uh (laughs) I I don't recognize uh, myself uh, in that way and you know, I've been sued 20-plus uh, times by the teachers' union to try and shut us down, and it's been kind of an ongoing uh, battle and very, very difficult. I think what uh, keeps, keeps me going is um, two things. First, it's the work. I am uh, jazzed about the work, to use your uh, language. I just, I'm very passionate about children and what they need 
and I'm not going to be bullied by people who or institutions that I don't think have kids' best interests. And so that is sort of the work part of it. I think personally, you know, I've got an unbelievably uh, supportive husband. I have three kids who have grown up, uh, and their reaction often is to make fun of me and my situation, Mm -hmm. uh, which, frankly, I appreciate because you can take it all so seriously that people are coming after you and being unfair and so forth. My kids have always just um, kind of made light of the situation, Uh, and so having that sort of system, and also having, you know, being really inspired by teachers and principals who get up every morning and hustle for every kid and are loving towards every kid. We created these really magical communities, and I feel as the leader of the organization, if they're willing to keep at it every single day, every hour of every day, that we are responsible for children and teaching and learning, then I've got to lead and I've got to be out in front and I I can't get in my feelings. I got to get back on the saddle and push forward to a time when more kids have access to better schools. So a a great formula for inspiring leaders seems to be to have a clear sense of purpose, a a really strong mission, and also to have a terrific team of people who can help keep your energy going on on the times when it gets tough. But that's not enough when you're building an organization. That can get the startup going, that can attract the initial supporters, that can take you a certain way, but in the story of organizations that really take off, there's there's almost always what you called, I, I think, the um, the parable of the startup, and and that's when you go from running a kind of loose and energetic beginning organization to to really getting your arms around it and stepping up as a CEO. It sounds like you went through maybe almost a crisis of confidence yourself when you wondered. How can you go from having a relatively small team to to running a big organization? And it it feels like you worked it out, partly by coming up with some structure. Was that a challenging time for you? And how have you put in place now the the structure that allows you to to be a CEO and and have an organization that can continue to scale up and and, uh, have quality control? Well, I think you're making some really good points. It, it, I had to take a step back because it was kind of too messy and there wasn't enough process. Uh, and at a certain point in time, while the results were very good, uh, I felt that it was sort of fragile and we needed much stronger glue to make it sustainable and to continue to scale. And so... Um, you know, I had to lead differently. Uh, and so I made some really concerted efforts to change the way I was leading and to also bring on considerable talent 
to help me. Uh, success is really a magnet for just some of the best and brightest creative and critical minds from every industry mm-hmm. to try and figure out how can we reimagine public education at scale. We are trying to get to 100 schools of extraordinary quality, which would make us somewhere in between the size of the Boston and Atlanta school system. And so attracting really smart, creative people is a very critical ingredient to allowing us to achieve those kinds of results and outcomes. In some places in, in the country, I, I think young people are discouraged about the prospect of a career in K-12 through education. What would you say to, say, a college student or maybe even younger, a, a person today who's, who's thinking about a career in education but is not so sure it's possible to create change? How, how can you encourage them? Well, I would not be discouraged at all. I think uh, teaching and the profession of being an educator is more exciting than Silicon Valley or uh, Hollywood or publishing or any other industry. And it's changed an enormous amount. What it means to be a teacher and educator today uh, is very different, at least at success, than many people are imagining. Uh, we use uh, data analytics a tremendous amount. Uh, it's much more entrepreneurial. We're kind of the Google of education. It's fast-paced. It's innovative. Uh, you're surrounded by really smart colleagues who are all mission-driven and engaged in Uh, supporting young people in their critical and creative thinking. So we attract talent from all over the country. It also, at success, it's sort of free of a lot of the traditional licensure requirements. And so we're able to gather talent uh, on the merit and really train people to do this kind of work at an exceptionally high level. I love your phrase, the Google of education. It feels like you're learning all the new tools and um, new understanding of how how our brains work, and uh, you're bringing in all kinds of experts. But for people who aren't in New York City, who don't have access to uh, something like Success Academy, but want to create change themselves, maybe the message is that there's a lot going on out there. There are a lot of people interested in these things, and this might be the time to step in and and take some of the new methods. And there are opportunities for people to do this on a smaller scale in their own communities or their own careers. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's a very exciting uh, time to be in this space. I've been doing this work uh, for 20 years, and there is no more exciting time than right now. Uh, You should also know that Success Academies has created something called the Ed Institute, and we have put uh, our uh, intellectual property online for anyone in the country or anywhere in the world 
to see and use. All right. It's so free. what's what's the link on that? We we can search Ed Institute, but is there anything else we need to know for people who want to get there? If you go to the Success Academy website, you'll see it. You can't miss it. It's called the Education Institute, and there are videos, uh, there are courses, there's very robust material if you want to learn about schooling and what's possible. And we are just, Beverly, at the beginning of this. We put our first installment online June 14th, and we've had 15,000 principals and superintendents and taxpayers around the country interested in how we're going about uh, educating kids. But your listeners should not be discouraged because the ed tech industry is very innovative. Uh, And schools all across America are starting on this journey of really rethinking how we provide this critical service to children. So you have had a career in education, which has been, it sounds like, a wonderful adventure, and and you've been rethinking all kinds of things. But education is not your only career. Uh, before you started your first school here, you were on the New York City Council, and, and there's some speculation that uh, politics might be a career that you could go back to. There's there are rumors that you might run to be mayor of New York City. And at the end of your book, you say, you don't know what's next. But can you give any thoughts about a career in politics these days and whether that might, again, be for you? Sure. I, I, I started as an academic and uh, a Ph.D. in American history, and I published rather than uh, perished, and then it is true I ran for office and became an elected official. I was chairwoman of the Education Committee in New York City uh, for a number of years. And I really believe in public elected service. I think it's really, really important, particularly in these dangerous, crazy times, that we have elected officials who are really committed to the public interest. And so it's something that I might go back to. I'm very, very focused on the children. I have 12,000 kids in elementary school who need a middle school and a high school. So, uh, you know, I'm not immediately uh, going back into the realm of politics. But I I believe it's important. And I think um, it's something I care greatly about our city, state, and country and so at the right moment, I might uh, return to government and politics. Well, I think a lot of people will be watching your career with interest. There have been folks who regard you as highly controversial, but I don't think anybody thinks of you as dull. And I, I feel the same way about your book. It's, it is anything but dull. I, I love the radical Candor, and I want to repeat the name of it. It's The Education of Eva Moskowitz, A Memoir. And I love the way the romance with your husband and your, your family life kind of wandered through the book as you got into the nitty-gritty of New York City politics and, 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 and some of the challenges you're facing in rethinking education. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I, um, I'm going to watch 
with interest myself to, to see what your next steps might be. Well, thank you, Beverly, for having me. Today, we've been talking with Eva Moskowitz, a passionate change agent in K-12 education and the author of a candid new memoir. Today's career tip is that perseverance pays off. It's not enough to have a vision of where you want to go and an idea about how to get there. You have to be prepared to deal with bumps in the road. People who want to get things done have to learn how to dust themselves off and from time to time start up again. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Thank you.